Hi, welcome to the Birding Life Youth Podcast, the show where we talk to young birders to find out what makes them tick. Last week, Mark had the opportunity to interview Kaylin O'Kana, and it was such a good interview that we decided we had to do it in two parts. So if you haven't listened to the first part yet, please be sure to go and listen to last week's show. So without further ado, please welcome Mark and Kaylin. Mm, yeah, there are a couple of people I know here in South Africa, fellow birders that use eBird. And I, I also, I have an eBird list of maybe 100 species. Um, so I do use it every now and then. It's pretty cool. I mean, the the app and the, the platform, the database has different names for birds and stuff. But uh, so like, oh, the, yeah, like the, the gray sunbird, it's called the mouse colored sunbird. So it's interesting, uh, but you just got to work your way around it. And yeah, I mean, eBird is quite different to Birdless in a number of ways. Uh, I think just like subtle differences that have the same um, aim really, and that's basically collecting information about birds and, and their behavior. So, and where they are found and stuff. So on Birdlasser, there's this thing called atlasing, where you can record species in pen tabs um, and eBird, I think, has like a similar thing, like all grids around the world on the map. Um, yeah, yeah. And you can do atlasing in your local pentad. There's a thing called like a home pentad. Um, and you try to find as many species in that pentad as possible. And you submit that to BirdLasser and uh, SABAP2, which is South African Bird Atlasing Project. For sure. And so that's, it, it's basically the same aim as eBird. Um, it's just a different database, really. So... Yep. It doesn't have those tools like eBird does, but um, yeah, you also get you you send in information for citizen science and stuff like that. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, but there's definitely birders here in Africa that use eBird because of its its uh, its lack of tools, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, here in South Africa, most birders use the BirdLasser app to keep a list and record bird sightings. Uh, but I still like to keep my life list in a little book list, a little, yeah, like a little checklist booklet that I got from the Bird Life South Africa magazine every year. Um, just because it's, oh. like, it's got its own little vibe about it uh, when you do it that way, even though it's very original these days. Um, yeah. But logging sightings on birding apps is a way to contribute to scientific research, as we just discussed. Um, and you were the first to record a couple of birds in your home turf. Tell us about those and how your records contributed to eBird. Absolutely. So um, I believe there's two bird species that I was the first to locate in my home county. And my first was when I was pretty young. I think I was eight years old. And I was skiing with my dad up at this ski hill far below tree line. And um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to just bump into a white-tailed ptarmigan, that same one that I did that grueling twitch for the morning after the cliff. But um, yeah, it was just walking around there on the bottom of the ski hill, which was really weird to see. So that was a first for the county and one hasn't been found since. But more recently, since I started birding, um, I was taking a fall migration walk through a local park. And so there's a trail network that goes around this little pond in my town called uh, Munson Pond, which is an artificial pond. I think it was just used for agricultural purposes. But um, yeah, then 
I'm just in the backfield there and there's kind of like a little homeless camp set up behind there, but I was, I wasn't too worried or anything like that. So I was just walking around back there and I flushed a bird up and it landed on a cattail and I snapped a couple photos of it and then it flew off and I was like, okay, so that was an orchard Oriole or it was a hooded Oriole, which those are two similar species here. And it was a hatchier bird. So telling them apart is an absolute mess. So both of them would be very rare and both would actually be a first for my county. So I wasn't too concerned which one it was going to end up being, but I was had my fingers crossed it was going to be an orchard oriole because that would be the first mainland record for my province. And as it turns out, it actually was an orchard oriole. So that was pretty cool. And I can't think of a time I was much more excited than that. <laughs> and where is that orchard oriole from? So it's an eastern bird. So the way that our um, the way that North America is divided up basically for birds is that the Rocky Mountains kind of cut the cut the land mass in half. So a lot of birds are going to be from east of the Rockies, and whenever they turn up here west of the Rockies, it's super exciting, and all the birders go crazy. And vice versa too. When our western birds go over the mountains, which I'd say happens a little more frequently just because they're used to mountains in the west we have a lot more mountains so that's more of a frequent occurrence but yeah so that was a that was a really awesome bird so they're they're not from that far away if you look on a map you can see there's just a little pink dot on ebird where i found my guy and then there's a few records from the coast on vancouver island which seems to get all kinds of bizarre species showing up there it's just a kind of like a migrant trap because it's this island, big island out in the ocean. So if anything's flying over, then there's only one place for them to really land. Okay, so it, when you logged the sighting, uh, what happened on the eBird app? Like, what could you see as a difference? Yeah, so when whenever a new species is logged for an area, the map is it's a live map, so. It's not like a field guide where the map stays the same forever. No, as, as species expand their ranges due to climate change and all kinds of factors, um, the map is changing. So you can plug in, if you want to see what the map used to look like, say 20, 30 years ago, you can say, you can set the date to that. And you can see, for example, Eurasian collared dove had a different range 40 years back than it does now. And then you can plug in 2020, 2021 or whatever. And then you can see oh, like how that map has shifted over time. And then if you want to see something with a, a shrinking range, you could say like, I don't know, any kind of shorebird basically, or like a lot of the wood warblers, their range, they've been extirpated or not. A better example would be something like, um, sharp-tailed grouse which is a grassland bird and they've kind of been extirpated out of a lot of grassland habitats to make room for farming and agri agriculture and stuff like that okay so you basically put your home county on the map because like as, an, as another place to find this bird um and like it shows now for other people to see that this is the first time it's been seen in this county or this area so yeah, that's a pretty cool like uh, 
advantage to bird apps that people can see the change in the ranges and distribution of birds and see where to find things. Uh, so yeah, man, that's cool. And yeah. talking about new birds for the area, I've just got to bring it up again because there are such cool birds, but the buff-breasted sandpipers I found my friend in December was only the 19th record for Southern Africa and the first for my home area or county. Um, and yesterday, another record, another report came through of a buff-breasted sandpiper in South Africa. Um, so, oh, wow. Yeah, so it was, it was pretty exciting. Uh, a, a fellow birder of mine said he was going twitching to go see it this morning. Um, or, oh, yeah, awesome. And, yeah, Thursday morning, and he, he, he just sent me photos. It's like crazy. It's crazy to see this bird that, uh, that I've, I've seen oh, wow. that before. You know, just to think that I've seen this species is awesome. But, um, you know, they're, they're not a common bird here. Definitely not. It's the 20th record that we've had in the subregion. But do they occur where you are at all? Um, so buff-breasted sandpipers are possible in southern BC, and there are records. I believe there was a record last year from Columbia Shushwap, which is a few counties over from mine, and has this the Salmon River. It, the town's called Salmon Arm, so it's the arm of the river there, and the mouth of the Salmon River is really close, so it's this big mud flat that stretches out, and it's just a magnet for shorebirds. So buff-breasted sandpiper has been reported there, but... I don't believe there's any records from my home county, so I guess that's some work for me to do this fall. <laughs> yeah, that'll be cool if we find a couple of those. Then we have <laughs> yeah. one more thing in common. Um, yeah, yeah. Do they occur in like the USA or like any other place in Canada? Oh yeah, so they they breed on the on the Arctic tundra. Um, you, you know what the Arctic tundra is, right? It's similar to okay, the Arctic. Yeah. yeah, so it's just this big biome of um, this little sedgy kind of lichen-covered rocks with like big spongy wetlands and stuff like that where just almost all of the shorebirds come from the Arctic tundra. So whether okay. it's in like Alaska or Alaska or northern Quebec, or even north is just shorebirds breeding there. So then buff-breasted sandpiper is one of those species that's going to migrate down the prairie provinces mostly because they're like big open fields and stuff during migration, even more than like lakes and wetlands and stuff like that. Yeah. And so for me, it's like such a flippant cool feeling to see American birds in South Africa. Oh, of course. Um, and their range does like, their range does expand in other places, but it, you know it's always possible they came from America. Um, and it's crazy, it's a crazy thought that they flew across kilometers and kilometers of sea to get here. Uh, but yeah. there's quite a few birds that occur in Africa and America. One in particular that never used to be found in America and now is because they just one day decided to move there. Um, can you share a bit more info about these birds? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So the cattle egret is such an interesting species because all the time we see um, we see birds ranges shrinking and expanding. But we what we don't see too often is um, the, the story of the cattle egret, where what appears to have happened was a flock flew from um, Africa to South America, colonized there and then pushed further north growing in population as they went 
And um, yeah, so that's a really, it's a really unique story. So a while back, we used to have records of them in, in um, my hometown, actually, but they realized um, BC was a little cold for them. So they headed back down south and now it's more of a species to be seen in, um, in the United States, pretty much throughout the country, but kind of preferring open farm fields and um, similar habitat to where you'd see them in Southern Africa. Okay. That, that's, it's crazy to think. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. You wouldn't really like classify as an invasive species or alien species because they just decided to get there by themselves and populate themselves. I wonder how that can be debated. Yeah. Well, like, I, I certainly, I wouldn't call them an invasive species just because they're not harmful to the native ones. I'm like something like a European starling or as you call them a common starling or a house sparrow, which do harm the native birds and so on. Yeah. Yeah. It's flipping it's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. As an interesting fact, how many bird species are on the list for Canada? So I believe we have 690, give or take a few. Well, give a few if anything new has been found. But yeah. And how many of these have you ticked off on your list? Um, My Canada list is 361, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay, cool. And like South Africa just got its first record for Crested Honey Buzzard the other week, which was number 984 for Southern Africa. I'm bragging here a bit, but just just as a fact. Um, yeah. I've only just managed to see half of that number. Uh, I'm just below 500 species at the moment for Southern Africa. So, yeah, I mean, right. your list is not bad for your country at all. It's, it's, it's amazing, actually. Yeah, I should be when I head further north this year, hoping to get a few more ticks onto that list and stuff like Connecticut warbler, morning warbler that are more eastern birds. So the way my province works, as I was saying, the Rocky Mountains head up and then they kind of stop at the northern part of my province. So once you pass the Rockies, it's just the eastern forest continues and sweeps across that northeastern section of my province. So we can get all these birds that people are seeing in Ontario and Quebec that breed there and also breed in my province, which is kind of interesting because it's across this massive landmass. Now, you've also gone birding in other parts of the world and you also had an epic trip to South Africa. So your life list is obviously a bit higher. Uh, Are you chilled to share your account? So I'm not entirely sure what my exact life list is but here i can pull it up on ebird yeah so my life list as it stands on ebird which is not going to be 100 percent accurate because i haven't logged every species i've seen is 1087 so i guess you could say i am in the 1000s club sure but yeah no that's that's a pretty good achievement well done man. and uh, just around the four what's the rarest bird you've twitched and what's the rarest bird you've found so yeah, the rarest bird I've ever found, as we said earlier, is the orchard oriole, which I wouldn't say is the rarest bird I've ever seen. The rarest bird I've ever seen would be 
there was a field fair that showed up again in salmon arm <laughs> um and that was in i believe the winter of 2019 and um yeah that was that was a great one so i got that for my for my canada list it's a it's a super good bird for bc i think it's the second one in bc but in nova scotia which is off the coast of canada off the east coast that bird occurs i believe annually if not biannually so yeah that was a that was a great one to get and especially what, inland and what does this bird look like uh, i don't i don't recognize the name at all you know it's very exotic to me <laughs> oh yeah so it's kind of it's in the same family as like your kurachani thrush i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly no that's fine but um, <laughs> yeah so it's a gray the gray thrush with some red on its back and some heavy spotting on its chest so yeah keep your eye open for it you gotta get that first record for south africa <laughs> no i will do as soon as i see it i'll send you a photo <laughs> oh yeah so a lot of our, our birds from our strays from eurasia come from siberia so they'll go to overwinter but a storm or other factors can send them off to the wrong coast and they'll end up in North America. And I'm not exactly sure what happens to those birds. I don't know if anybody's put a geolocator on them or something like that, but we hope they, they make it back to their home country, but who knows where they spend the summer. So they might just stay with that flock of robins and end up somewhere in Canada's boreal forest. But yeah. Okay, cool, man. Well, thanks for taking the time to have this discussion with me. It was lucky to hear from you again. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay. Cheers, man. Happy birding. Absolutely. Yeah, good talking to you, Mark. That was such a great interview. A big thanks to Mark for conducting the interview and big thanks to Caitlin O'Connor for being our guest. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on your preferred podcast player. And be sure to follow us on all social media platforms. Until next time, happy birding. Mm-hmm.